Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 16th of July 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Elisa. Now, before we get into today's show and the details, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe, including hitting the notification bell so that you're alerted to when we have new shows posted. Uh, and also share this as widely as you can so people have access to this information which is unique and they're not going to get anywhere else. Um, now the topics we're going to cover on today's show. Learn from New Zealand. Deposits will be bailed in and we're going to give you a bit of the backdrop of the latest on the global financial meltdown which is moving at pace and go through why that means bail-in is back on the agenda fair and square. Your deposits will not be safe, that is for sure. And then on the second topic, ASIC must be held accountable for Sterling First. Uh, we're going to cover the story of two of the victims of Sterling First and show why an ASIC inquiry is absolutely urgent. So right to today's first topic, learn from New Zealand, deposits will be bailed in. Now, just to give the backdrop to this, the middle of July 2007, exactly 14 years ago, you had the collapse of two Bear Stearns hedge funds and then a series of others that flowed, including hedge funds right here in Australia and the beginnings of a whole wave of um, impacts of that where you had uh, hospitals and local councils and charities getting all of their, their bank accounts wiped out by that uh, disaster. They were, they were the pre-tremors of the global financial crisis and it's what's um, dramatised in the movie The Big Short mm. very well. Exactly. And the point that we made uh, immediately because we saw the so-called effort taking place to um, you know, reconstruct and rebuild the financial system without moral hazard and so forth, which included quote-unquote bail-in, which is the idea to confiscate people's uh, savings and certain investments, certain tiers of bonds, in order to stop the bank from collapsing to protect the financial system. And we knew straight away that was just a complete fraud um, designed to do more of the same, continue the existence of numerous global financial bubbles, which would make matters worse. And here we are where we're in a situation expecting a new global financial crisis. There's been signs of that over the recent couple of years um, and we're in a worse position to deal with it both on the financial front and on the economic front. Our economy can't handle a new crash of this kind of magnitude that we're looking at. And Elisa, a lot of the financial reporting in the last 18 months has been distorted by the chaos around COVID pandemic, but um, now the actual reality of the specific financial problems are starting to come through. Yeah, and one of the latest warnings, and of course we document them regularly, is from, and this was in the Australian Press too, the nine newspapers um, from Jeremy Grantham uh, from GMO Investment, who's warning about a trifecta of bubbles in the bond, stock and real estate markets, uh, which he described has never happened anywhere before in that trio of combinations all at once on a worldwide scale. Michael Burry from the big, who was dramatised in the big short as one of the people who predicted the crash then, 
he has essentially been saying the same thing. This is the biggest, worst bubble of all time that we're in. Yep, and you can read more of the warnings in the Australian Alert Service, which if you haven't called in for a free copy, please do so. And if you are interested in finding out more and supporting us, get a subscription to this. There was an article a couple of weeks ago on uh, congressional hearings in the United States where they warned about uh, the crypto bubble, not just in people buying crypto, but people gambling on the price of crypto. And well, specifically hedge funds gambling on cryptocurrencies with leverage of 100 to 1. Mm -hmm. The leverage that brought down Lehman Brothers in 2008 was 33 to 1. Exactly, and hedge funds are very, um, they're unregulated and family offices like Arkegos that collapsed earlier in the year are, don't even have to be registered with the Securities Exchange Commission because they have such a small number of clients, exclusive elite clients. And you can read another article in this week's alert service called The Rise of the Hedge Funds about how you know, these dangerous entities that gamble in purely speculative derivatives have been actually given uh, a greater role in managing the US Treasury market, which is the vital bond market uh, to fund US debt, uh, and also in provision of liquidity in the overnight liquidity markets known as the repo market. So there are new dangers even beyond what we would have even imagined prior to the 2007-08 crisis. Um, now, one of the other warnings has actually come from New Zealand, and you discussed it on the shows last week, you and Craig, uh, where New Zealand uh, is beginning to make crash preparations to cool down their housing bubble at the same time we're doing quite the opposite here and therefore they're moving to protect themselves from a housing market and derivatives bubble market crash here in Australia by doing things like forcing the Australian banks, which are their banks, to hold higher capital uh, requirements on their books and so forth. Well, that's the thing. What they're doing to, to their banks is actually our banks, right? The big four banks in New Zealand are owned by the big four banks in Australia. And they've made them, they're making them hold higher capital than New Zealand banks because they carry more risk because of what they're doing here. And Australians should be wondering, why aren't, we, why aren't our authorities telling us about the risks in our banking system that the New Zealand government's acting on, mm. right? So that, there's, a, there's a big issue there. But the other thing that, that's happened in New Zealand, though, is the government there is enacting a statutory bail-in law. Um, and this is a less sense, it's the, the risk aversion things they're doing are sensible. This is less sensible because this is them basically th saying we've got to conform to the International Monetary Fund and the Financial Stability Board of the Bank for International Settlements, right? Um, whereas, just to state it from the outset, the bail-in approach to um, uh, stopping a financial crisis is insane. And it's immoral because it puts the, the burden on the innocent players in the system, which is the, the unsuspecting depositors, most of whom put their money in a bank in trust, right? Because we as little kids, we we're taught to, don't put it under your bed, put it in the bank, right? And so you expect the governments to keep the banks, make sure the banks keep that safe because we know the governments will bail out the banks. And that, so bail-in saying, oh, we don't want governments to bail out banks, so now the, the, the burden has to be on the depositors. Glass-Steagall that America had for almost 70 years is what we should have gone back to, where you separate the banks and say, if you're a bank with deposits, you are no longer allowed to do anything remotely dangerous, right? The worst risk you can take is, you know, lending to local businesses in your community. You cannot gamble in derivatives, etc. That's what they should have done. And unfortunately, New Zealand's going the same way as the rest of the world, though, right? And they're conforming to the International Monetary Fund here. But what Australians should take notice of, Elisa, is in discussing this new bail-in system they're going to legislate 
a statutory bail-in law which is which will supersede their existing bail-in law, which already takes deposits. It's called Open Bank Resolution. And it's one of the most explicit in the world in saying Absolutely. that they will confiscate deposits. The, the, the New Zealand doesn't has never tried to hide that. So why do they need this new statutory bail-in? Well, the IMF actually, in a funny way, said, um, New Zealand, oh, you think your system's a little bit too harsh. And not they meant that, it's probably just for show, but what they were, what they were actually saying is, if New Zealand has really paid attention to what you're going to do to their deposits, they're going to be run on your banks. So the IMF recommended New Zealand you should have a deposit insurance scheme, like a deposit guarantee, like we supposedly have in Australia. And the Kiwis had actually resisted that forever. They're very reluctant to, but they said, okay, we'll have a $100,000 deposit guarantee and we'll, we'll legislate your kind of bail-in system. And in discussing that, there was a cabinet paper released in April that we cover in the, in the um, we did a press release this week, so it's in the alert service, New Zealand law will bail in deposits in Australian banks. Um, and you can click on the little information button to get information on that, get the press release. That's right. It's just up above here. Um, you can read it for yourself. But the New Zealand uh, government is saying, yes, we're going our system will bail in deposits. However, we have to figure out how insured deposits will, will work within the bail-in system. And if you read it, you're thinking, hang on a minute. They're supposed to be insured. Why isn't it a black and white guarantee that they won't be touched? And there's a, the New Zealand government doesn't explain it, but it's clear it's not a black and white guarantee. They have not yet decided whether when they do a bail-in, insured deposits will be bailed in. They haven't decided that yet, and they can't. And the reason they can't, Elisa, is because bail-in is designed to protect banks, not to protect people, yep. right? And nobody can really foresee how, what the crisis will be like in each individual bank. And at the end of the day, they have to be able to take whatever they want, right? And maybe what they'll adopt the European system, which is you bail in everything and then reimburse the, the insured deposits later, except in uh, Europe, like in Italy, the bail-in happens like that. The reimbursement can take years. Five or six years or even longer. Right? It's a it, 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 deposit guarantee guarantee. It's ridiculous. And that's what New Zealand's playing with. But Australians need to be aware of this because... When we, for, oh, what is it, 2021, since 2013, when we have been telling Australians about bail-in and they've been going to members of parliament, mm. every member of parliament, especially in the major parties, always said the same thing, don't worry, your deposits are guaranteed. As if guarantee on deposits means they can't be bailed in. Well, Europe shows and New Zealand, is the discussion in New Zealand right on our doorstep in our banks shows that the two don't have anything to do with each other. Yep. Right, It's no protection at all. And in fact, our financial claim scheme kicks in when a bank actually shuts down, when it goes bankrupt. But the whole point of bail-in is to stop con con the contagion rippling through the entire financial system yep. by keeping the bank open, by stopping it from collapsing, full stop. That's the thing. They don't want any contagion spreading. So they need to keep the bank fu functioning and re-liquid reliquify re it by <laughs> stealing money um, and the deposit insurance is literally just a fig leaf to give you you know to say oh no this is your protection yep, yep. Um, that's been made clear in New Zealand that's been made clear in experience practical experience in Europe and the United States which was one of the first places that we looked into um, uh, when after the um, first instance of um, the stealing of deposits in um, Cyprus. Cyprus in 2013, one of the first places we looked at was the United States because its 
bail-in features were part of the Dodd-Frank Act that was brought in in 2010 and it's administered by their Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation which is the one that goes guarantor for people's deposits in the banks and under Title II of that Dodd-Frank Act the priority uh, was made for the FDIC to save the bank to prevent contagion and hence derivatives for instance financial gambling were given derivatives instruments were given top priority over all other claims in a bail-in because if they had to be sold or unwound in a bank liquidation it would cause the yeah. ultimate panic and the FDIC uh, it literally said in this act shall to the greatest extent practicable conduct its operations in a manner that mitigates the potential for serious adverse effects to the financial system. In other words, uh, deposits don't have to be honoured, your obligation to depositors, because they're not going to cause a, a meltdown of the system. Your obligations to these crazy, these derivatives bets you've made that are so crazy they should have been illegal, um, you have to honour those because the consequences of not could be mm. a global meltdown. Stuff the people and their livelihoods. Um, now, one other point I wanted to make is the, um, of course, these bail-in laws, as we've said many times in the past, come through the Bank for International Settlements, a uh, global bureau of central banks worldwide that is unelected, uh, completely independent private body, and they've been escalating their demands in recent years. I mean, people may, for bail-in to be exactly the, the way they want it, people may remember after we passed our bail-in laws here in Australia... Um, was in 2018. Yep, so February 14th, 2018. Uh, a year later, the IMF Financial Stability Assessment for Australia demanded that we enact full statutory bail-in, which explicitly would allow deposits to be taken other than the, as opposed to the implicit way it occurs So they now. demanded we do what New Zealand is doing now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that was the call to us. Um, and they also demanded that Australian authorities not be answerable to elected officials over bail-in. So that they had to be given total power to do this and not be restricted by politicians coming in saying, oh, I'm getting calls from my constituents, you better not do this. And then in July 2020, the Financial Stability Board put out a report which reviewed the implementation of bail-in globally, insisting that all the gaps in the system, in the framework, be closed and that every nation implement have the broadest range of powers under the legal framework, exercisable without the consent of shareholders, creditors, debtors or the firm in resolution. So complete top-down control, answerable to no one. And then this year in May 2021, a report by the Financial Stability Institute, which is all the FSB is all under the Bank for International Settlements umbrella, uh, demanded operational independence for resolution authorities enshrined in law and even demanded that countries provide legal protections for the agencies and the people in those agencies that conduct these bail-ins uh, for the consequences of their decisions, which could result in people, businesses, companies, even governments, losing a lot of money. Yep. Um, there is good news, though, Elisa, and the good news is not for Australians, it's for New Zealanders. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think, if I was a New Zealander, I'd be campaigning very hard right now against this bail-in law. 
right? Go really hard against it. New Zealand would be a great place to have a, have a, a, a debate about bail-in versus Glass-Steagall. And they should go really hard on that. Start a petition, get people involved. Take your, take your, your parliament on. Why are you following the dictates of the IMF and the Bank for International Settlements here? However, what New Zealand New Zealanders have an advantage over Australians, even with their bail-in law, is that in that they have an alternative to bail-in in the banks, which is they have a public bank, a postal bank. It's called Kiwi Bank. And I don't want to overstate how great it is, except one thing that's great about it is it's a public bank. And it was started in 2000 or 2001 by a, um, a great, uh, you know, true blue Labor guy over there named Jim Anderton. He made sure it got up. And as a public bank, it's only going to get bailed in if its owners go bankrupt. Well, its owners is the New Zealand government. They're not going to go bankrupt, right? So New Zealanders have the choice between the big four Australian-owned banks, which are derivatives casinos, or a bank owned by their own government. And if I was a Kiwi and they're going to pass this law, I would put my money in that bank. Now, I'm not a Kiwi. But I'm just saying that's what I would do, yeah. right? They have an alternative. And Australians should learn from that. That's one of the reasons we have a campaign here, Elisa, for a postal bank. Yep. Right? It'll give people somewhere to put their money that's safe if our banks are, are going to be allowed to keep being casinos. Right? I don't want, you, you don't, sensible people don't go to a casino without having pre-arranged how much they're prepared to lose because that's what happens at a casino. The house always wins. Well, our banks are casinos, mm. right? And we need an, an alternative to the banks that is safe. And that's what a postal bank could be. And you can join our campaign. We'll put information up. You can click on the little eye there up in the corner um, because we can, you can, if you haven't already signed our petition for uh, such a bank to be created here in Australia, you can join our campaign to get a resolution tabled in your local council or any other organisation. Um, but there's also One Nation uh, put up an amendment last year to yeah. try to amend the bail-in law. We still need to fight for that. We'll have information forthcoming in future weeks, but there is this One Nation Amendment that Malcolm Roberts moved and there was a big inquiry into it, etc. It was a standalone bill. One Nation is, has the option now of taking the same wording, which is just a short amendment, and are putting it into another bill to amend that 2018 law that was passed, which, in, which has a loophole in the 2018 law, and close that loophole up. And if, that, if, if, if Senator Roberts' amendment gets up, then the loophole that could possibly bail in Australian deposits can't be used, right? And then we'll be protecting ourselves. And the government will either have to drop this in intention entirely or go the full New Zealand option and have an open debate about it, which they will lose, mm. right? Because we're one of the few countries in the world that's actually really fought this hard at the grassroots level because our organisation led it and fought it successfully, right? Most countries that have a bail-in law, Elisa, even the Kiwis, don't know, didn't yeah. know about bail-in before it was passed. Right? We have, we have made sure here, going back to 2013, that that's not the case. That's right. Unless you go regularly scouting around on the RBNZ website, you wouldn't have a clue. Yep. Um, righto. So we're going to move on to our next topic now, which um, really tackles some of the machinations of how, you know, this top-down financial system is destroying our lives and livelihoods. So our topic is ASIC must be held accountable for sterling first. And, of course, we're rec referring to this um, scam we've talked about in recent shows <clears throat> where ASIC allowed previous uh, serial offenders behind numerous known Ponzi schemes to set up a new scheme where pensioners were suckered into um, what sounded like a decent arrangement where they would have... Um, rent for the remainder of their lives. They could downsize, downsize, downsize their homes, 
But instead of having to shell out, because I've got a big home, big family, that's all gone now. You know, the kids have moved out. They, they don't have to work anymore. Um, they own their home, downsize it to something smaller and cheaper by, instead of buying a home, well, here's a rent for life scheme. We put up $250,000, $300,000, and we're, you know, 65 years old, 70 years old. That's going to cover us. That rent will cover us for 40 years, mm. but 40 years is the rest of their life, right? And the kids and will get what's left afterwards. And, yeah, yeah. you know, it all yeah. sounded very good. And um, so we want to give some examples of people affected by this to bring it to life for people. And the first case are two of the tenants that bought into this, Beryl and Ray. Um, and Beryl actually did her due diligence quite impressively. She went and searched the ASIC register for this company to see their background. She actually called up ASIC to check for any red flags and she was given the all clear. Because, Elisa, Beryl never, ever, ever wanted to be an investor. Yeah. Right? She had been offered shares in the company she worked for when she was working and had refused them. She mm -hmm. never wanted to be an investor. So when this came along, she was careful to, to try and find out, am I being talked into an investment here or is this what they say it is, which is me prepaying rent for the rest of my life? Went yep. to ASIC, did everything right. And at that time, ASIC did know they had already received complaints about this very company, Sterling First. They had they'd received complaints about this company, but they also knew the directors of the exactly. company had records a mile long. Going back to right, their previous with, with, operations. With hundreds of victims in their wake. And this is all in the Australian Alert Service. You can read all and the Beryl details. And Beryl was not able to find out this information um, when she needed to to be able to make an informed decision. And then when she sat down, um, her and her husband, with the investment company to sign all the papers, um, they were not in told in any way, shape or form that what they were buying into was a complicated managed investment scheme with multiple layers of complexity um, whatsoever when they got the paperwork sent to them later on, um, you know, it was buried in the fine print right at the back, you know, which would have been um, uh, innocuous to most people anyway, the way they... I think they... it was at the bottom of a 90-page um, file. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, in 2019, Sterling first collapsed and they were left in the dark. Um, there were subsequent takeovers and changes that were not explained to them. The bottom line, and you can read the details, and it's really important to do so in the alert service to see exactly what went on, but the bottom line was their life savings were wiped out. Um, they described their life from then on as a living nightmare with the hoops they had to jump through just to remain in their home, which is still um, a tenuous proposition. But on the other side of the story, we document one of the landlords because the landlords want to rent out their properties. Um, have a good arrangement just like the tenants yeah, saw so it as a good arrangement. So Sterling first drew in tenants they and drew the, in landlords. They were the middleman. They were the middleman. And they never let the tenants and the landlords have anything to do with each other or see the other side of the equation. The landlords thought they were, buying, they were, they were getting into something like the, um, the military in Australia, the Australian Defence Force has this scheme where you can buy a house that soldiers rent out. Right? And so it's a good investment for Australians because the military takes care of all the details, etc. So they thought it was something like that. And Sterling First is offering that kind of thing here. This is, look, you'll be set for, you'll be, you've got a long-term tenant, they're elderly people, they're not going to trash your place, etc. Everything's great. And that's what they thought they were getting into. Mm. Now, the landlord who Melissa Harrison interviewed for this um, article was encouraged into this scheme by his financial advisor. 
And it turns out, um, as you begin to pick over the bones of all of this, that all of the various levels were connected into this scam, from the financial advisor to the property investment company involved, to the property builder, to the mortgage broker, the actuary, the, the bank. banks involved. Um, and it involved things from inflated property values to inflated rents, forged signatures. I mean, the whole kit and caboodle there uh, is there, which has been documented um, by Denise Braley, you know, a consumer advocate in this area. Yep. Um, and what Denise and the victims and others are fighting for is an inquiry into ASIC because none of this would have been allowed to occur had ASIC just followed the rules uh, and made companies accountable to those rules. That's, that's the point. This is, um, without the ASIC part, you look at this, there is a, Australians need to get smarter in deciding, look, if something looks too good to be true, it probably is. But when you've got the umpire named ASIC there and the, the victim, before they sign up, goes and does their due diligence and these directors do have a history a mile long and ASIC knows them, it's up to, it's now ASIC's obligation. Heck, here's the argument. The government says, oh, it's caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. How can the buyer beware if the information is not made available to them, right? If the, if the umpire, ASIC, is hiding the information they need to be aware of, how can the buyer beware? So when Morris, Scott Morrison and the head of APRA, etc., say that, they are charlatans and there's 140 pensioners around Australia who are facing eviction now within months because of this, because ASIC let them be suckered into something that ASIC knew they should be warning them against. And in fact, these directors shouldn't have even been allowed to start another scheme. ASIC was protecting them. ASIC didn't just let these directors start a new scheme, Elisa. It helped them do it. Mm. It helped write the product disclosure statement that was hidden at the bottom of that 90-page um, pile, uh, pile of documents that, that uh, the, the victims got. So this is, this is there's plenty of cases of bank victims and they're, they're all very, very different. In, in the totality, though, you know we have a very predatory financial system in Australia. This is a clear-cut case, more clear-cut than most, where it's these people are victims because of the failings of the regulator to do its basic job. And that's why we need to support and we're going to help. the. Um, we want Australians to get involved in this. We need to get behind this call for an ASIC inquiry because it will deal with this case, but it will deal with ASIC in general, right? We, we have to clean up our financial system. Our financial system is completely predatory and you don't get how important it is until you're the victim, right? But there's thousands of victims around Australia and the Royal Commission shone a bit of a light on it and has done nothing. We cannot let that happen. So a Senate, an, an inquiry into ASIC is very important. I think it should start with a Senate inquiry. If that leads to a Royal Commission in the future, that's great. In this case, they need compensation. 18 million, you, see what's, the, the, the problem is the, the, the tenants are, are pitted against the landlords, right? Um, you can't expect the landlords to let the tenants keep living in their homes because these a lot of these landlords, like the one we talk about in, the, in Melissa's article, Matt, he you know he needs the income from his rental property, mm. right? Um, so there has to be compensation in this case to make up for ASIC's failings, which is the government's failings, right? Pay the eighteen million dollars and settle the whole thing, and, and don't let this happen again. So that's a clear-cut one, but the inquiry is even more important because it needs to be more far-reaching as part of cleaning up the financial system. And there are, let me just say again, the other part we always have to emphasise in this is this is why we need to change the geometry of our banking system by restarting public banks in Australia. Mm. 
Mm. Right? Until you have, we can, we can clean up the regulators, etc. But until we have a system where the private banks don't have a total monopoly and they are forced to compete with public options, like a postal bank, that, that will make a profit, but that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to serve. Um, until the private banks are forced to compete with that, all they're going to do is compete with each other to see who can rip people off the most. Mm. If, they have to force, if they're forced to compete with real service or else they'll lose their customers, right? only that will make them lift their game. And that's why that's, a, that's still a big part of this whole picture. It'll save you from a, pub, a public postal bank will save you from bail-in like in New Zealand mm-hmm. and it will help clean up the financial system in Australia. Yep. <clears throat> so that's basically the show for this week. Um, don't forget to contact us for a copy of the alert service and participate in the campaign. And we're going to put Melissa's article on our website, Melissa yep. Harrison's article on this. You do need to read the details of what happened to Beryl and Ray and then to Matt, the, the landlord. So you can click on that and on the eye and, and read that um, because you'll, you'll see why this is such an important campaign. Yep. And don't forget to hit the like button, subscribe, hit the notification buttons and share this on your social media accounts and so forth to get it the broadest possible circulation. So thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you again next week. Hi, I'm Benjamin Pierce, editor of the Citizens Report. The subject matter in today's episode is of crucial importance to every Australian, the nation as a whole, and the future that we are each of us responsible for creating. Our fellow Australians need to be informed both of the threats our nation faces, as well as the optimistic ideas necessary to overcome them and build a better future. We need you to help in this fight. In addition to what we discuss in this show, you can help spread the word by liking this video, subscribing to the channel, be sure to ring the bell so that you receive notifications when our latest videos go live, and share the video with friends on as many social media platforms as you are able. Also, actively engage in the comments section and share your thoughts on the issues we present.